Welcome to the Green Card Podcast. This is the place to find out how you could soon be living the American dream. Who am I? I'm James George. I made my dream move to California and I'm loving every minute. Over the next 45 minutes, we will have another amazing guest to help you make your dream move. So we have got Lisa Khan back on the podcast this week, our immigration attorney. How are you, Lisa? I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. Brilliant. Thank you for coming back on. So this one, we're going to talk about mainly people that are on E2 visas already. We're going to talk about pathways to the green card. We're going to talk about uh, doing business as and different companies. We're going to talk about the EAD, the work authorization for people. So there's going to be quite a lot that we delve into. Uh, the first one, which we were literally just talking about off air, is to do with the work authorization. So I thought maybe we'll, we'll talk about that first. This is sure. a, a poignant one for me because I was advised I didn't need it, by, to be honest, by an attorney who was pretty useless and um, I wish I'd never used for my E2 application and this is a hot topic on forums and things at the moment and it's whether the the spouse of the person who is the, the main applicant whether they need it or not what's your opinion on that yeah so let's say you know a very common scenario for an E2 is you might have a husband and wife they own a business 50-50 but only maybe let's just say the husband is the principal E2 investor and the spouse has come in as an E2 spouse with the thought that, you know, if that if the wife wanted to get employment outside the business, that they'd be able to do so by getting a work authorization card or an employment authorization document, an EAP. Sometimes people think, well, I like that option, but, you know, once I got over here, we're both working in the business and I'm not going to go work elsewhere, so why do I need a, uh, an EAD or a work card? Um, every U.S. employer, if they're hiring an individual as an employee and that individual is going to go on payroll and, and get a salary, they have to fill out the form I-9, which is the Employment Eligibility Verification Form. It's part of all the hiring you know, documents when you make uh, have new hire. And you have to fill that out even for self-employment, which is interesting. So if you're hiring yourself or you're self-employed, you still have to have an I-9 on file. Um, with the I-9 form you can find at the immigration website, which is um, www.uscis.gov. But in order to complete the I-9 form, um, the an E-2 spouse has to have some proof that they're employment authorized. And if they don't have the work card, they really won't have the appropriate document um, to pass muster for the I-9. So there's an employer liability issue there. Um, so that's one thing. Um, if you have a spouse that's working in the business and maybe answering the phone and doing the accounts, this, that, and the other, but isn't on, on payroll and is just helping out and maybe, you know, doesn't, uh, doesn't take any money out of the business, then not such a big deal. And I wouldn't worry about a work card. Um, but if a spouse is getting a paycheck at all, definitely important to have the work card. If they're just taking out, um, owner distributions or profits, then I think you're fine without having a work card as well. Okay, and what happens if someone is hasn't got an EAD at the moment and they listen to this podcast, realize they don't have one, and they can now apply for one, but is there going to be any yeah. implications down the road? Because obviously they're probably not in a position where they can just quit their job and then go back to it. So what, yeah. would, what, 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 what would, would they do then? never too late to fix it. You know, sometimes I see this when perhaps someone will come to me and say, we, we want to renew our E2 
And I was like, great, we'll need tax returns, we'll need W-2s for all employees for the last two years and maybe 1099. And I'll see maybe in the W-2s that both husband and wife are on the payroll and both have a W-2. Um, and then, but I, maybe that the spouse has never had a work card. So then to me, that's a bit of a red flag. And I say, ooh, you're on the payroll, you're working for the company, but you don't have a work card. Um, it's never too late to get the work card. Um, I had that very situation occur recently. And when the client went to the embassy for their visa renewal, the officer um, asked about that uh, of the spouse. You know, hey, are you working in the business and do you have a work card? And spouse didn't. And it was kind of like a deer in the headlights. And um, the officer made an issue of that. They ended up, uh, I think, sort of forgetting that issue and moving on to something else. But it was unnerving for the uh, for the applicant. And it, I think wouldn't have not a fun situation to go through. So um, nobody wants any extra stress or added worry or to feel that they're not doing something quite right. And now a government official is going to call them out on it. So yeah. that it can come up with a renewal, whether it's an extension of one stay here in the U.S. or whether it's at a consulate. It can also come into play if someone is fortunate enough to maybe go from an E2 to permanent residence and is filing to adjust their status to permanent residence. With that filing, we have to show that um, from the date of last admission to the U.S. that um, you know, each applicant in the family that's filing for the green card uh, has maintained their lawful status. So one way to cure um, a potential problem where somebody might have worked and not have the work card to a certain degree is by going out of the country and coming back in because when we do the adjustment, we only have to show maintenance of status since the last entry. That could kind of correct a problem that might have lurked in the background. If they come back in and now they've had the work card going forward, um, but that could could arise um, where an E2 spouse is filing for a green card and immigration asks for proof of maintenance of status, including all work cards if they're on the payroll. Oh, I see. So if effectively someone didn't have it for four years, um, mm-hmm. but in the last year they'd left the country, came back in, got a new work authorization card, then they should be fine because they're essentially only doing it from when they last entered the country. They'd be fine on, you know, on that adjustment application where they've got to show proof of status. So in order to adjust status um, from a non-immigrant status like an E2 to permanent residence, um, you've got to show that you are in status and have been maintaining that status. So you generally you put in there your last entry document, the I-94, and then proof that, you know, you've been maintaining that status since last entry. I see. So, and, yeah. Okay. So, uh, in regards to oh, the yeah. work authorization, EAD, uh, how long does that last? Because uh, I read the other day that if you leave the country and come back in and you get an I-94, you need to get a new EAD. Is that correct? No, the EAD no? is still valid. You don't need to get Perfect. a new one every time you come in and out. That would be you know, problematic for a lot of folks. For a lot of people, yeah. <laughs> sure. And how long does it last They're for? They're taking a little bit longer, I think, right now. Everything seems to be taking a little bit longer with immigration. So in the past, you know, you'd say, well, maybe file three months before it expires. Now I'd, I'd say a good four months, maybe five months ahead of time to be on the safe side. Some employers, particularly big employers with a with a you know pretty tough HR department, um, will sometimes take you know individuals off the payroll or let them go and then rehire them if that work card hasn't arrived in time. I see. So that can be a little bit tricky. And how long does um, it last? Is it two years? I the EAD. You know that this is. Uh, I want to say it's a year, but I think some of them are two years. Okay. Uh, and I should know that. <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> I should know it as well, but there you go. Um, I've got a feeling it's a year or it might be two years. Yeah. Uh, okay, brilliant. Well, that's that. That's that one sorted. What about doing business as DBA? So here's a good example. We run a princess party company that does chil- is children entertaining. And the, the business is not going anywhere near as well as we hoped. We've got a very successful business in the UK and in California, there just isn't the need for it for a lot of different reasons. Okay. So um, I've just started as a realtor and what we're thinking of doing is, and we've spoken to our accountant and he said it's fine with that, is essentially doing business as me being a realtor. Now, obviously, that is completely different to our original business. So in regards to getting a renewal, is that going to be a problem? Not necessarily. But I'll usually advise folks to do, um, it rather than you know, when you're setting up a new E2 company, is to come up with a name that's a little bit generic instead of something like Princess Parties Incorporated or Princess that's Parties what LLC. Annoyingly, that's what it happens. And I, that's wish, okay. I wish we yeah, have been given better advice because, yeah, yeah I wish we had just... Right. Yeah. Could have, but it's okay. Yeah. So you can have a business that says Princess Parties Inc. Doing business as um, you know, James Real Estate. Yeah, uh, exactly. Something like that. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're made in real estate regulations and, and whatnot with the name and all that kind of thing. But you know, the point of it is you can have a company that sounds quite different and then have a doing business as for a new division or branch of the business. Um, an example of that is I had some clients who bought a travel agency some years ago, and they set up something like ABC Travel Agency Incorporated. They got over here and realized the travel agency business days were numbered, I think, particularly with the internet. Yeah. And they ended up selling that business and then reinvesting in a daycare center. So their corporation was still a, a travel agency enterprises, but now it was travel agency enterprises doing business as Precious Children Daycare, that's one option just to do... You and, know, and they the didn't have a problem thing. renewing their visa at all? Um, well, uh, they didn't have a problem because they had... It was still the same corporate entity. They had shifted gears completely, but they had um, reinvested. It still, and still met the criteria for an E2. They, they were in a new business now than the original one. And so when we filed to renew, it was akin to really a new filing. We had to show that they had run this business for a couple of years. They'd sold it. They reinvested. They bought this business, and here are all the documents now, really, for a new E2. Yeah. So not quite a, as slim, maybe, a, a filing as normally you would do for an E2 that's just kind of ticking along. The other option um, in that scenario, even for you, is to just amend the corporation name. So instead of Princess Parties Incorporated, you can amend your articles of incorporation and do a legal name change that yep. you're now going to be ABC Enterprises, and then maybe that's going to do business as Princess Parties and do business as yes. uh, James Real Estate, and then maybe open a restaurant next year and you're doing business as you know, California Restaurant. I think when people say, is it okay to expand on our business or go in another direction? My feeling is that the U.S. government is always happy if someone's growing a business, expanding a business, reinvesting, employing more people. That's a good thing. So if somebody says, I bought a property management company in Florida and I'm managing vacation homes, and that was what we started doing, uh, and we have a lot of homes under management, and now we've taken on some pool cleaning, and we're opening up a pool cleaning division, and we've registered a, a doing business as a fictitious name as Orlando pool cleaning, and now we're creating another division for residential cleaning. That kind of thing is great. You know, when you go back for a renewal and you say we started with a property management company, we're still doing that, but we've also also expanded into pool cleaning and residential cleaning, and we've got more staff and greater revenue. You know, that's that's honestly going to make everybody happy. 
Yeah, brilliant. Well, that's really useful to know. And I think for a lot of people out there that might be in a similar situation to myself that have started a business or taken on a business that's not as successful as they hoped, but they want to stay here um, and they know they can be successful in other things, then there is a different path that they can take. And I think, frankly, that's the sign of a good investor. You know, a good investor and somebody who's directing and developing a business is going to be, um, you know, aware of trends in, you know, in business and in industries and when they're, you know, when it's time to maybe go in a different direction or there's an opportunity that they can, you know, seize on to grow their business in a different way. Where that kind of thing can get a little tricky is with immigration here in the U.S. When individuals, for example, let's say somebody came on as a visitor and after a period of months changed their status over to an E2 and bought the travel agency and two years later they filed to extend their stay with immigration and now they have a whole new business, that can be problematic because immigration here doesn't like um, to have a material change like that kind of thrown on them in the context of an extension request. The consulates are okay with it, and if you look at kind of some of their checklists for, you know, what da- what documents they want for renewals, they'll indicate in there, if you're not running the same type of business as before, then you need to provide all the documents that you would for a first-time application. Whereas here in the U.S., immigration feels that if there's a material change in the business, that you need to then file an amended filing uh, with immigration. Okay. But that's, that's a little bit different. That's really for people who are not maybe here with a valid visa and they're here on an extension of stay or, an, or a change of stay and, and they're going to be filing with immigration, then they need to be um, uh, mindful because immigration wants to know when the change happens. Okay, brilliant. That's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons, frankly, that I'm really not bullish on doing a change of status um, when, you know, you can't really travel freely on that. The visa is issued by the embassy that allows you to come in and out and, um, those kind of changes don't always sit well with immigration either. Fantastic. Well, that's cleared two of the things up. The last one to talk about is pathways to a green card, which for me and a lot of E2 people are is an interesting one because obviously there's no direct one. I know I've got a friend who's on an L1 here, and don't get me wrong, it's, it takes a lot of work to still get the green card, but there is technically a direct pathway. But with the green, with the E2, there isn't a direct pathway, but my understanding of it is, is that I, because my wife is the, the main holder of, um, the, the visa for us, um, uh-huh. I can effectively find an employer to technically take me on and get a green card that way. Or there's obviously the option of the EB5 where we invest for example, half a million in a certain area in the country, have 10 employees, that type of thing. So there's that option as well. Um, they, Those two, and then obviously there's also the extraordinary ability option to go down that route. Is that right? Are they the free options for people on an E2? Those are some of the options, but there are more options as well. Um, so I'd be happy to kind of uh, cover those yes. potential options. Yes. Generally, for, for a green card, um, the basis to immigrate would either be through employment or investment or also through a family relationship. So sometimes we'll have someone that um, that will get a green card through a family relationship. Maybe they come in, in, in on an E2 as a single investor and they fall in love and marry a citizen. And I, and I have that happen. I have a fellow who got his 
each of visa. That uh, would be an, the easiest way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, and now he's truly in love and marrying a citizen. So that's a, that's a great you know way to get a green card, but only if it's the, if it's a you know real marriage. Yeah. And that's you know not the case with a lot of folks. A lot of people are coming over as families, and so it's a different story. Sometimes it's through an older child that maybe um, uh, is in college or university here and falls in love at a young age. And yep, Mary Adams was lucky enough to have heart. that. Yep. <laughs> yep, and becomes a citizen and then files for mom and dad, so that can happen. We have a diversity visa lottery, and that's um, and I don't know how long that's going to last because there's talk about doing away with it, but individuals from certain countries are eligible for the visa lottery. The UK is not one of the countries that is eligible, but I've had other clients, for example, from Belgium um, or the Netherlands that have won the visa lottery and gone from an E2 to a green card. So where I have E2 folks that are um, from a diversity visa lottery eligible country, I always have them apply every year because you never know when they're going to win. And I've had a couple clients who won very, very soon after coming in on an E2, so they were thrilled. Um, There are, you know, Categories for uh, green cards through asylum or, you know, refugee, that kind of thing. That doesn't apply for most D2s. And then, you know, generally we've got the employment categories as the most likely basis other than a family relationship for folks on an E2 to get a green card. So you mentioned a couple of those. One is extraordinary ability. Um, and I've had individuals from an E2 um, go that route or even, you know, skip an E2 and, and go the extraordinary ability route. It's a high threshold to meet. It's, you've got to be extraordinary in your field, um, really at the top of your game and, you know, have international or national acclaim and at the, you know, top, uh, the very top of one's uh, field as evidenced by things like prizes, honors and awards showing a, you know, national or international recognition, uh, membership in associations that require outstanding achievements of their members, commanding a high salary or other remuneration compared to others in the field having made original uh, contributions um, of significance to the field, um, having been a judge of the work of others in the field, having authored or written articles or books or um, any kind of publication about one's uh, field and expertise and, and work in the field, having been featured in media, TV, newspaper articles, things like that. So pretty high threshold to meet, but... Um, some people are extraordinary, and, and some people don't realize they're extraordinary, and, and they may have a good case. So that's a potential option, but again, not for everybody. There's a category for outstanding researchers and professors. I haven't had anybody on an E2 go that route um, before, uh, but it's really geared, you know, really geared toward people who are going to be working in academia. Um, there's a category for religious workers, individuals who are priests, ministers, that sort of thing. And I've done those filings before, uh, not from an E2, but generally somebody who's come in as a religious worker um, and then been sponsored by a, a church organization. Um, you mentioned um, the process whereby a U.S. employer could sponsor an individual for permanent residence um, and that that could be something maybe doable for an E2 spouse with a work card. That's, a, a, I think, a good option for a lot of folks that may be a husband and wife, they own a business 50-50, and one person has a work card and has the flexibility to work elsewhere. That process is called labor certification, and it's kind of three steps. The first step really is where a U.S. employer um, has to go through a good faith recruitment or advertising effort um, for a particular position and indicate you know, the, the job, the, the location, and what the minimum criteria are. 
And then based on that recruitment effort, if they are unable to find a U.S. worker who's willing, able, qualified, and available for the job, but they've identified a foreign worker, who's someone at an E2 with a work card, and that individual meets the criteria for the position, then that can establish the basis to immigrate. And after that recruitment and advertising is done, an application is submitted to Department of Labor, and if approved, um, then that is a certification from Department of Labor that there is a shortage of U.S. workers um, for this particular employer, and that becomes the underlying basis to immigrate. Step two, then, is filing that labor certification approval with immigration, um, along with proof that the employer has the ability to pay the prevailing wage for the position. So one of the first things we do before we even start advertising is obtain a prevailing wage determination from Department of Labor based on the nature of the job, the location, the duties, etc. What is the going rate or the kind of the prevailing salary for that job? And we always have to make sure that the U.S. employer sponsoring someone is willing and able to pay that amount. Sometimes the wage comes back prohibitively high and then the employer isn't really able to, to go through that process or offer that salary to the employee. So you, if someone's looking for a potential sponsor, you want to make sure it's a company or an employer that financially is sound enough to be able to, to go through this process. Yep. Um, and then with that filing with immigration, it's filed on the form I-140. Uh, the employer offers you know a permanent position with proof of the uh, labor certification, the ability to pay, and then the foreign workers' credentials. And then the third step is really the adjustment or the, the actual green card part where they're looking at the individuals, um, you know, kind of uh, individually, not so much the company anymore, but you do the medical exam and provide birth certificate, marriage certificate, that kind of thing. So th- I think that's a good route to go um, where an E2 spouse is able to be sponsored by um, a U.S. employer. Interestingly, We've also done that before where it might be an E2 investor who's working in their own company but has a, let's say, a vendor or a friendly competitor company that they don't work for but is willing to go through that process with the idea that, hey, when we go through this process, you're going to come work for us. We're offering you a permanent position. Most employers aren't willing to go through the hoops of the recruitment and the advertising and the cost of that for somebody who's not already working for them. But it is possible, and I find it's more possible if there's some kind of a relationship there, not a family relationship per se, but maybe a, you know, a, uh, you, you scratch my back, I scratch yeah, your back to yeah. a relationship where you've got a supplier and, uh, you know, you send them a lot of business and they say, well, you know, there's a role that you can take up within our company, you know, we're similarly aligned in our industry and we'd be willing to, to sponsor you for the green car because we have some interest in doing so as well. So that's something to kind of and, think about. And if someone, say for example, I went down that route tomorrow, and I and I started the process tomorrow, and I knew I found someone who was willing to go through the process for me. How long does it normally take? Well, it's not a fast process. Um, at the moment, I would say it's about two to three months to get the prevailing wage back from Department of Labor. Then we file. Then we start doing the advertising, which is about three months. Um, so figure five to six months to get the wage and do the advertising. Then we submit the application to Department of Labor. 
best case scenario, I'd say you could get an approval in four months. It's getting increasingly common for Department of Labor to audit the filings and ask for more documentation, ask for actual copies of the ads to make sure that the ads were really done. And if it's a smaller company, they're often asking for things like articles of incorporation and um, tax returns and company documents to make sure that everything's on the up and up. So I'm finding that's getting more common and that's taking a little bit longer now to get through Department of Labor. So I might say six to 10 months through Department of Labor. Um, and then with an approval there, the I-140 petition with immigration can be fast-tracked. There's an optional premium processing fee of $1,225 that can be paid for a two-week turnaround time. Um, and you can file the I-140, get it approved, and then do the adjustment. Or you can file the I-140 currently with the adjustment or the green card application and, and kind of get a jump start on that. Once that adjustment application is filed, I kind of feel like that's the home free zone. You know, once that's filed, um, then you don't have to worry so much about the E2 and renewing that with the adjustment application. The family, uh, the you know, principal, the employee that's being sponsored, and then the family will be able to obtain a work card and a travel document, and they'll work and travel pursuant to that rather than say the E2 or another visa status. Um, those cases from start to finish are probably taking six to nine months. Um, in the past, those employment-based green card cases were pretty much approved by mail with no need for an interview, and now they're all being interviewed at the local office. So that's added a so little bit more time. So if you've got a five-year visa, then more than likely three years into it, you should probably start this process just in case then. If you could, it'd be, it'd be great because you might be able to get from you know, get through the labor certification process into a point where you're filing an adjustment within a two-year time frame, and then that would, you know, prevent you from having to renew an E-2, potentially. Okay. Sometimes, too, folks will say, you know, well, if you think, if you've got a five-year visa, and each time that you come in on the E-2, you get a two-year admission, um, you know, some people may take a trip out of the U.S. when they've got three or four months left on their visa, and when they return, they still get admitted for two years. So you can stretch a five-year visa into a seven-year stay in the U.S. if you take a trip out toward the tail end of the visa. It's so, just so yeah. So you're saying it, the, if this whole process started and it wasn't getting completed by the end of the five years, you could potentially leave, come back, and stay for another two years whilst that process was going through. Yeah, if you're willing to kind of be in the U.S. without the landlocked, should yeah. travel and yeah. in and out, you know, with ease. Yeah, but if you're if you're so close to filing the adjustment and you just need a few more months, then it may be you know maybe worth it. Um, so that is a that is a route, and we call it's called the PERM or, or labor certification. Yeah. Um, you also mentioned the EB five, which is each of these uh, immigrant visas are employment visas. So EB stands for employment based, and EB one includes um, extraordinary ability, for example. EB-4 is for religious work. EB-5 is the um, immigrant investor. The immigrant investor, the EB-5, is very different than the E-2. When it first started, it was really meant for direct investment, where an investor was essentially direct, directly investing into a new company, a million dollars or more, and going to create at least 10 jobs for U.S. workers within a two-year time frame. Um, if the investment's in a rural area or an area of high unemployment or a targeted employment area, then it's reduced to 500000 but you still have to create 10 full-time jobs for U.S. workers. And those are W-2 employees, not 1099s. Um, I think when the program came out, immigration thought they were going to get a lot of people 
who are putting a million dollars into maybe you know, developing and building a new manufacturing facility and hiring 20 workers. And the reality was it just wasn't really happening. So the EB-5 kind of morphed from direct investment only to also allowing for indirect investment um, through regional centers. And now yeah. that's probably 95% or more of all EB-5s are indirect regional center cases. That's where there are investment projects around the country that require many millions of dollars to come to fruition. And um, those projects will accept multiple foreign investors, each putting in generally half a million dollars. Most of those, they try to qualify as as um, you know, rural areas or target employment areas for the half a million investment. And then of the jobs that are being created from the whole project, they'll tribute 10 jobs to you know investor A, B, C, D. So that's kind of how that works. The regional centers... Um, I, I'm not a huge fan of the EB-5 regional centers for a few different reasons. I think there's certainly a high element of risk where you're giving someone else half a million of your dollars and you don't really have a say in how the project is being run or developed. Um, so you really need to vet um, those projects carefully and do your homework and research on the projects. I wouldn't be inclined if it was me to invest in a brand new project with no track record. I would look for a project that has a good track record of success in getting the green cards as well as um, return on investment. Sometimes people feel like if they're going to go the EB-5 route and they want to live in Florida or California, that they have to find a regional center in Florida or California. Not the case. You know, you're not really going to have a say in how it's being run. So, uh, you know, I think, you know, put your money where there's a, a safer investment regardless of where you tend to live. And normally um, when do you get that investment back? Is it? I think it depends years? a little bit on the project and kind of their, well, you know, sometimes there have been investors that don't get a nickel back. You know, there have been projects that have failed or that have been riddled with fraud and people have lost their entire investment and not gotten anything back. That's certainly a worst case scenario. Yeah. Um, I think there are, you know, projects that are run well have kind of a, a return and payout uh, scheme or, or plan that with particular payments. I'm not quite sure you know, what the time frame is on that. Um, and I think it varies a little bit from project to project. I'm not really an expert on EB-5 regional centers. There, it's an area that's changing all the time. There's a, it seems to me a new regional center popping up all the time. Um, and as with anything in immigration, the standards of adjudication, the processes and things can change a bit. And um, Well, the uh, rumor well, is still, that that's going to go up as well, that they're going to increase it. Well and they maybe, keep putting yeah, it off but i have is going to be done away with and it's going to be higher um so that's that's not my niche area i think it can be a good route for folks if there are no other real options for them and they're willing and able to buy a green card for themselves and their family for five hundred thousand. yeah if somebody's in that fortunate position financially and they're willing to take the risk and they research it well and it's worth it to them to to, to do that, then I think it's great. If it's every last dollar someone scraped together and everything is going into this and hinging on it, I feel like that's very risky. There's also people which have invested, say, 100, 200,000 into their E2 business. And my understanding of it is, is that can then be used towards the EB5. So effectively, if you then invested another three to 400,000 in a rural area, then you could get the EB5? Yeah, potentially so. You still got to meet, you know, the, the 10 full-time U.S. worker criteria. Um, I haven't had that happen much, but I did have it happen with um, a client who's from Thailand and has a um, chain of 
Thai restaurants and is here on an E2. And they were opening a new restaurant uh, and putting in a million dollars or more. They put in a little over a million dollars to build out this large new restaurant and to outfit the whole thing. So we were able to, to document the million dollars. And sense. they were hiring more than 10 full-time U.S. workers between the servers and the kitchen staff and the bar staff and the hostesses, etc. So we did a direct EB-5 for, for those folks. Um, when you do the EB-5, you get a two-year conditional green card. Um, so it's a temporary green card, and then you have to file before the two-year card expires to remove the conditions and show that you really have created the 10 full-time jobs, the business is still up and running, etc. We had a little scare with that restaurant because the original concept um, wasn't successful, and they closed the restaurant for a couple of months and regrouped, rebranded, and opened a new one. Thankfully, they kept it all under the same company name, so the initial million-dollar investment was was still there. They probably invested more, really, but they switched gears and went in a slightly different direction. But by the time we filed to remove the conditions, they were back up and running with the new concept, and they, they did have the 10 workers. But it was a little scary there because they said they, you know, they called me and said, we're losing money on this restaurant. We can't keep it open. And I said, well, shh, this is going to be a problem because you're not going to be able to keep that yeah. green card unless you can salvage it, and, and they were able to do so. Well, honestly, that was an unbelievable um, amount of information, and it was really, really useful, not only for me, but I bet for um, everyone who was listening. Thank you so much for coming on, Lisa. No problem. Absolutely. I I didn't mention, too, there's the multinational executive manager is another route for Oh, okay. Yeah, but I'll just throw that out there, too. Yes. (laughs) But a lot of folks out of E2 may not qualify for that, although some some can, depending upon how things were structured, if they have a foreign company and it's still operating, et cetera. Okay. Um, well I'm going to have to book an appointment to chat to you in the next few months myself to talk about my different options and I'm sure you will get a lot of other people wanting to get in contact with you so how will they best get in contact with you Um, they can visit my website which is lisavisa.com l-i-s-a-v-i-s-a.com or email me Um, my email is lisa at lisavisa.com so it's pretty easy to remember I think sometimes people call me Lisa Visa. And I yeah. <laughs> as long as you remember me, I don't mind what you're calling me. <laughs> it is a very easy one to remember. Thank you so yeah. much for coming on the show. You have been unbelievably helpful. I'm sure lots of people are yeah. going to get in contact with you as well to get some help. Well, thank you for having me on. I enjoyed it. Brilliant. Have a good Have a good evening. It was now because you're thank three you. hours different to us in Florida. So have a good evening. Thank you. You as well. Take care. Okay. Bye. Okay, bye.